Hello and welcome to the Me and My Golf podcast and we have got another megastar special guest. We have got Cameron McCormick, coach to Jordan Spieth amongst many other fantastic golfers and golfers of all levels all around the world who resides in Dallas, Texas and has the Altus Performance Center where is his main base. But Cameron spends a lot of time traveling the PGA Tour, LPGA Tours, working with his players. And in this podcast, we really get to find out a little bit about what makes Cameron tick. You know, talking about his early origin story and then going into how he really fine-tuned his coaching to work with players of all levels, but obviously the main thing that we wanted to talk about was how he works with Jordan and winning, obviously, these major championships. And there's lots of fantastic value for you, the listener, to go through in this podcast as well and how you can help your game. So, look, we were really excited to do this. We've been planning it for a while. We're definitely going to be doing some more work with Cameron down the line. So we hope you enjoy this. And without further ado, here's Cameron McCormick. So, Cameron McCormick, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me on. No Pleasure. problem at all. No problem at all. It's in interesting times. You've been obviously adapting. We've been listening to the podcast, obviously, and you've been doing some fantastic work on the Earn Your Edge podcast. So it's it's about adapting and finding opportunities in this time, isn't it? Yeah, we had uh, extended break from, as we know, competitive golf and therefore coaching on tour. But that meant the players had uh, some extra time to kind of allocate to doing some um, some media both obligations and also uh, many think of them as opportunities and uh, we kind of uh, sent out some messages to the contact list that we had and it was nice to get some some really prominent guests on our podcast from uh, Jordan to Justin to Webb to Adam Scott and the list uh, the list goes on so we've been releasing those things periodically we've got a couple of a uh, couple of three actually additional high profile guests before things get underway and I can I can imagine we're going to face a recording drought of, um, let's say, top <laughs> 20 players here in the coming months as they're playing as much golf as they can possibly play um, <laughs> to feel like they played a, uh, a season of, of note. Yeah, get them in while you can. Get them in while you can quickly. <laughs> yep. well, well, look, Cam, it's, it's so, um, so good to have you on the podcast. You know, it's great to talk to you, somebody who's got loads of knowledge and experience to share hopefully a lot of value with our customers. You know, we, we are a little bit limited on time, so we'll see if we can get through our questions as, as quick as possible. But let's dive straight into your coaching philosophy in terms of what would you say your philosophy is and are there anything, that, anything specific that you like to see in the golf swing? Yeah, so I'd, I'd start answering that question by describing current state, what that philosophy is right now. And the expression current state doesn't mean it's the end state. As you guys both know, and anyone that's been around a coach or any coaches out there, you're always trying to evolve. You're always trying to um, elevate skill levels and morph to improve the results that you achieve as a coach that are, I guess, mirrored through or reflected by the results that you achieve with your players, whether those players are 36 handicaps, uh, beginning golfers, all the way to players that are competing on the world stage you might see play on TV. So... Uh, current state is a, a ball backwards uh, outcome first. Uh, so looking at ball flight, uh, working backwards from that to uncover or discover um, how a player's desired outcome, how they want their ball to fly at a given target, um, is mismatched to the outcomes that they're getting. Uh, in addition to that, I think as a rookie coach, kind of differentiating where I've come from, uh, as a rookie coach, this is now 22, 23 years ago, I was very 
uh, kind of impulsive and reactive as I reflect back then and would take action on you know, the occurrence of a poor shot rather than the pattern of a poor shot. And recreational golf is still to this day uh, impulsive and reactive as, as they are. They hit one poor shot and they think the um, cascade of disaster shots are going to follow. And so they start to tinker and react to those poor shots. And um, it takes some wisdom as a coach and wisdom as a player to tap the brakes and be patient and work through kind of a logical progression of what's the ball doing? Uh, what are the outcomes in movement? Or so the drivers in movement for that outcome and what's the lead domino, so to speak, the one thing that can, if uh, put back into place or corrected, um, solve for um, the malady of issues that are present in either contact or ball flight. So uh, I guess if I had to define it in a phrase, uh, it's a skills first, style second uh, approach that I've taken. It's a measure twice and cut once type of approach. Anyone who's been or seen me coach will um, kind of express while wow, the methodical nature, the slow and um, uh, pragmatic approach that I might take as a, with a client in front of me. Um, and that's because I want to make choices and decisions and provide uh, action steps that I can firmly believe and firmly feel are the right things for the player standing in front of me. Again, whether that's a brand new golfer or someone competing on the world stage. Um, I've developed that philosophy over time as uh, a function of both successes and also failures. You know, you look at, as you guys are prominent coaches and successful coaches, and you think, oh man, this, this guy's got a magic wand or a crystal ball and never makes errors. And it couldn't be further from the truth, right? Uh, we learn from our uh, successes and from our failures. And so the failures are... Uh, opportunities. If we learn through those, we walk through the coaches and the players and the others on, on the receiving end of our coaching are better for that and days following that mistake or months following that mistake or years following uh, the series of mistakes that kind of accrue our knowledge base. I think, I think it's interesting, isn't it? I'm just, as you're talking there as well, Cam, I'm sort of going back to my early days as a coach and thinking that when you do start off, you sort of you want to sort of make a lot of changes, and you do you too tend to be reactive, and and you see a bad shot or you see a poor swing, and you want to change a lot of things. And over the years, it's really filtering all that out and sort of going well, having the confidence to actually sometimes not say anything and wait and be patient. And if somebody looks at you and says, "What did I do wrong there?" It's you don't have to provide an answer for that there and then in terms of well, look, they don't do something wrong every shot, do they? And and as you mentioned, yeah. look for the patterns. You know, is this a consistent pattern? And do we actually need to change this thing? And I think it does take confidence as a coach, but also, as you said, confidence in a player to go, I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to react to all these small things that are happening. I need to, to really think about the one thing that's going to make a difference. Yeah, I didn't answer the second part of your question, though, which is what I look for in the golf swing. So make sure we get back to that. <laughs> but, but referencing what you just said, it's so true as well. And I think as... Uh, people that receive instruction, so our clients or novice coaches, it's kind of the culture of instruction, the expectation that you're going to pay uh, a sum of money. Um, and in return for that, you need to receive some value. And oftentimes we as coaches look at that value as saying, I've got to, I've got to provide information. And we err on the side of data dump uh, versus uh, less being more. Being subtractive uh, is a better way than being additive. And I, I remember so many lessons 20 years ago where uh, I would check the column of additive. I would check the column of 
here are seven things that I think we need to improve and we can try and tackle them all at once. <laughs> and y- y- you end up with a player in front of, you, in front of you who's tied in in knots, who's uh, proverbially uh, being tied in the Gordian knot, a most complex of problems that, um, yeah, uh, need to be trimmed down to its essence of simplicity. So definitely right. there. So in terms of like the, the golf swing, uh, style being um, subservient to skill, there are a variety of players and a variety of motions that can get the job done. You know, if you just look at um, technology that we use, whether that's uh, TrackMan that I've been um, a, a user of for uh, 15, 16 years, ever since the first big box came out or any other launch monitor company out there that can provide a coach or a player data, um, you can provide the right combination of attack angle and face to path uh, to produce the same flight that Henrik Stenson or Jordan Spieth or Justin Thomas might be able to produce that is a beautiful golf shot, even as a 30 handicap. Um, but that doesn't mean that the movement pattern, the style that you used um, is in any way similar to produce that same event that we call impact. Uh, so I'm working to create uh, repeatability and tight tolerances of the impact event uh, and I have my preferences in terms of corridors of movement, but I would say that I'm largely style agnostic, uh, particularly when the player presents with a set of matchups uh, that get that job done. And when I say matchups, I'm talking about combinations of uh, posture, of stance, of grip, of rotational motion, of uh, face hinge, meaning wrist motions. Um, of plane shapes as well. So there are a variety of things that we look at as coaches when we've got our coaching glass and our coaching or coaching glasses and coaching hat on, and we filter them out. And as experienced coaches, we sift through um, which are functional matchups and which are dysfunctional matchups. Um, so if you take on kind of one end of the spectrum, Matt Kuchar, who plays a cup but aims yet uh, 15 degrees with his stance right of where he wants to launch the golf ball, and then gets the club head working up and under, essentially hitting an uppercut cut, um, shifting the club head swing direction some 16 degrees, 17 degrees left of where his base stance is. I mean, that's a matchup that's exceptionally functional, but yet you don't find many coaches teaching that. And my question would be, well, why not? Um, Plain truth guys are certainly teaching it, and they understand how to um, design and architect that. So um, I guess the long and the short of it is – the most experienced coaches that I've been around and the coach that I've tried to become is a coach that can work with a variety of different forms, different styles, different techniques, different limitations in um, uh, movement, movement abilities for the player in front of you. Um, but yet still cause the same impact events to happen and happen over and over and over. Uh, there was a time, if you asked me that question 16, 17 years ago, <laughs> I would have given you a litany or a laundry list of things of positions you need to hit and again, I don't want to, to illustrate to your listeners that that doesn't exist. I certainly have corridors of movement that are functional versus dysfunctional. Um, but yet i am uh, become a person that uh, is certainly tolerant of a variety of different idiosyncrasies to get the job done. A lot more open-minded, I think, is the key, isn't it? That's obviously what happens has happened in all of our coaching. I think we become a lot more open-minded to, to different styles that we see in front of us. Yeah, I think the industry as a whole has evolved and it's evolved because of prominent voices in this industry that are speaking their stories of success and their stories of evolution uh, that are probably uh, shifting or have been shifting 
uh, the pendulum to the side of being relatively style agnostic. Um, maybe uh, none so more as number one, Butch Harmon, and number two, the guys at TPI have done a great job educating uh, thousands of professionals, thousands of uh, golf evangelists, coaches, if you will, <laughs> uh, across the world. And then you have uh, the people that have learned through failures, who have learned through hit these positions and you're bound to shoot lower scores. And yet, and that was me as a rookie coach, hit these positions and you're bound to shoot lower scores. And yet uh, the results that were coming up the back end were absolutely garbage. So um, I had to, it was a cage rallying moment, a career moment, two years into coaching that caused me to um, kind of hit the brakes and, and reassess and figure that there's other people out there having success. And so I tr traveled uh, the country here in America, finding out what they did different. Mm, brilliant. Love it. Love it. Brilliant. And what would you say, the, what, for, the, for the listeners to this, what are the questions that they should be asking themselves for them to get better? Or if they were, or if they ask, were going to a coach, what should they be asking? Yeah, so the series of questions that a player should be asking themselves would be uh, very objective-based questions. What do I desire to get out of golf? Is it uh, enjoyment? Where does my enjoyment come from? Is it beating my uh, guy friends or girlfriends, those that... I play with regularly on a Wednesday or a Saturday game or a Sunday game, or do I have aspirations to compete at some level um, outside of my club, or do I have aspirations to climb the ladder of competitive golf all the way to the top on European PGA, LPGA tours? So that's the starting point, kind of setting a goal or setting a destination. And then from there, it's the objective, where am I at versus where, I, where do I need to be? And that's so hard for any golfer to kind of step, step back and, and um, really provide an honest answer to uh, the expression or the uh, the phrase I've often heard is it's hard to read a label when you're inside the bottle, right? And so that's where a coach comes in, a coach that has the experience of taking someone to places that a person wants to go. And that becomes one of the filtering mechanisms or decision-making process for a player out there looking to hire a, a coach to help them. And number one, look for a coach that's taken a player or players to the places that you want to go Uh and then that conversation between the coach and the, and, and the client needs to be, well, here are the measures of merit, those things that we can um, use to compare and contrast your skill set against where it needs to be. And then you start to build an action plan around that, an action plan of uh, daily habits, daily activities, or in the context of maybe a recreational player, weekly or monthly activities, um, two, three practice sessions over a month that are slowly going to move you in a direction of increased success, whether that's just improving the precision of your putting stroke. So you're not three putting, you're not missing from five feet or improving the touch in your putting stroke. Um, so you're not three putting six or seven times around uh, with the right information and the right um, uh, coach carrying you there. Uh, some simple things can provide some remarkable results over a course of time. The one point that I would make to coaches and players alike that would be listening is it's so easy to look for immediate success. And when that immediate success doesn't come, it's very easy to spit the bit, um, to use a, in a kind of an equestrian or horse riding analogy, right? Uh, when you're trying to break a horse. And the players that I've had most success with, the players that um, respect the process, that long-term process and are patient through it but yet they're at the same time impatient they're impatient and want the results now and that drives the willingness to do the work um 
so desire being the engine that drives kind of uh, pursuit of being better. But at the same time, when they're not better, they recognize that um, sometimes it takes a little bit more time than one practice session for results to show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that conversation needs to be had between players and coaches. So uh, exercise patience, but also at the same time, exercise p- impatience. I know that's kind of an oxymoron, but um, <laughs> th- those th- that type of attitude is uh, littered through our conversations with players like Ricky Fowler and Justin Thomas and Adam Scott. Um, as much as it is uh, lessons that recreational players can learn from and embrace, right? Because when you hear players talk about what they're working on and how long they've been working at it, oftentimes the conversations, I've been working on these two or three things for months, if not years. Yeah. <laughs> True? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. And I think, it's, I think it's amazing, actually. I'm thinking of this, again, a lot of the listeners won't want to hear that it takes a long time to get better. <laughs> and I think if you think about it, a lot of people, six months, 12 months is a very short time, but people will will try, let's say, in six months' time, that, in, sorry, six months' period of time, they'll try lots of different things once, hoping to get the instant results, instead mm-hmm. of maybe going, well, for six months, I'm going to really work at these two things and be patient. And if I do these two things, I'm going to make huge improvements over this period of time. Whereas if they, they you know, and I just know so many people who over this period of time will be changing so many different things, hoping it's going to stick and work quickly, when if they are patient and, and they do look at it as a long-term thing and change two things over six months, it's going to be a, a much, so much more beneficial to them. No doubt. Yeah, short-term, short-term gains is what it's all about for a lot of golfers. Probably us as well. We're probably, we're probably the same ourselves. If we went into the culture of golf instruction that feeds into that as well, whether it's yeah, Golf Magazine or whether it's the abundance of uh, information that can be sourced on Instagram or, yeah. or, or YouTube. And in my mind, it's, um, it's a big tapestry of pieces, yeah. but what the golfer is not able to do is he's not able to, or she's not able to filter through all of the abundance of knowledge that's out there, the abundance of information that's out there and pick those, those one or two things, Andy, as you said, that are most applicable, that you, that's the horse you need to ride and you need to ride that horse for months and, and be saddle sore because you've done it so much that in two weeks you start to see some gains in a month you start to see some great gains and you start to beat your previous best scores or your previous average yeah absolutely and how do you this i've always i always like to ask this question of coaches and how do you with your clients when they're when they're playing badly and they're they're they're, their swings a little bit out of whack and they've they're not quite got a hold of things how do you help them when they're on the golf course still because obviously as you said there's this process of it takes time to change, but if somebody is coming to you and say, well, look, I'd like to, I understand it's going to take some time to change, but how do I still get out on the golf course and play better? What sort of things would you look at with them? Yeah, you have to equip a player of any ability with self-coaching mechanisms. And so I try and teach, don't try, I do actively teach three C's, clue collection, correlation, and correction. So the first is, what is it that we've been able to discuss as player and coach in session, whether it's using feedback technology of TrackMan or video camera or uh, Sam Lab or Blast Motion or any other technologies that can provide both coach and player feedback that helps inform what creates that gap between here's what I want to achieve, my intent, my ball flight intent or my roll intent versus the execution, the, the, the outcome of uh, the swing, if you will. So you've got this gap between intent and outcome. And so the clue collection is golfer A needs to be able to be on the golf course and say, okay, 
if I'm getting X, but I want Y, what are the clues that I can see in ball flight? What are the clues that I can feel in movement that then inform me and say, okay, when I see the ball go right, I know coaches told me there's a good chance I under-rotated. And as a, as a function of that under-rotation, just as an example, I've then uh, flexed the trail wrist and extended the lead wrist and introduced a much more open or weak face relationship causing that ball to go to the right. And so then that player says, okay, on the next shot, I'm going to really try and get a deep rotation and make sure that my wrist angles are much more different in the motion and the backswing. And voila, that then turns into a correlation that then turns into a correction, right? I've got a piece of information, reading the tea leaves, so to speak. I've then built in a reference back to what I've discussed with coach that says, when I see X, implement Y. On the next one, I've got correction, implement Y. Voila, I've got some difference in the outcome. And then you're trying to narrow the um, that gap between intense and uh, execution. Um, sorry, I didn't mean for that, to, that noise to come across there. My bad. We didn't hear it. We didn't, didn't hear it. it. Okay. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect. That was a text coming through. So nonetheless, yeah, it's about teaching the golfer to self-coach. It's actually about working ourselves out of um, the job of being able to or, or needing to provide uh, that feedback that's instantaneous because the player needs to be equipped to provide that for themselves. Yeah. Now it makes 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 total sense. Makes total sense. And I think it's again, it's then you know one thing we always say: taking charge of your own game. And that's what we're asking them to do, isn't it? As a coach, we want them to take charge of themselves. With a, you know, the the less information we give them over time, the better job we're doing, I suppose. Yeah, so, actually, we're, we're we're driving instructors, aren't we? Right? We're sitting absolutely. We're sitting riding shotgun. We're in the passenger seat, and we're teaching them how to drive it. At the same time, we're also asking them to um, look at their GPS unit. And so reading feedback is like looking at their GPS unit. Okay, take a left turn. Perfect. I took a left turn. Now I'm on the right track, right? And so course corrections, um, yeah, are really important. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no problem, no problem. Just, just, yeah, just, just, just moving on. But I think that's just a good analogy, that is. So obviously in the UK now, uh, well, normally, and, and now I suppose now we're getting out of lockdown, obviously a lot of competitions take place. So obviously you have a shorter window in the UK um, compared to some place in the States, maybe where you are obviously in Texas. So if we're talking from April to October, the golfer wants to play out of a lot of golf, mm-hmm. but that golfer probably wants to do work at their game as well. So how do you, how do you get someone who's got some obvious things that they'd like to work out in their game whilst still playing a lot of golf? How can they manage that? Cause I think a lot of people do ask these questions for us. So I think of playing golf as the test mm-hmm. and I think of practice as the study. And so the study is to improve at the test. And so there's a trade-off. There are 168 hours in the week. You're going to sleep for 40-ish of them. If you're back to work or you're working from home, or if you're back to work, you're probably going to work for 40-ish. If you're working from home, you might say you're working for 40-ish, but you might be working for 25 to <laughs> 25 30 the best. <laughs> yeah. And so if you're working from home, you can take those extra 10 and reallocate them into some indoor practice, some practice on your well-putt mat or your well-stroke mat or your whatever putting tool you're using currently, um, some practice on your uh, your hitting using your iPhone video camera to um, check all the boxes on the, on the feedback um, or the, the places your movement needs to be moving uh, or morphing to produce better results. Um, but yeah, the reality comes down to time allocation, resource allocation. Uh, if you want to improve on a test, you have to study. If you're not going to study, then likely you're going to continue to get the same result on the math test as you will get the same result on your scorecard at the end of 18 holes. So um, uh, managing that trade-off, having a conversation about trade-off with the players uh, is essential. But there are also high mileage ways to improve that are skill-based 
far more than they are movement-based would allow efficiency and time allocation. So just because a player is able to say, cool, I want to get better. I want to test out better on my next 18-hole test. And I'm willing, coach, to allocate four hours over the next week to get better. What are the things I should should do? It's going to be pointless going out and continuing to make 100 two-footers a day. Right? That's not a difference maker as it relates to a person's score. Whereas a difference maker as it relates to a recreational player's score is likely functional ball control off the tee, meaning not hitting it into the shit. It's going to be when you miss a green, don't have two shots from green side to get it on the green. Either pick a form, pick a club, or pick a strategy. It might not be a flop shot to a tight pin. It might be just hitting it to the center of the green where you're avoiding double or triple and you're taking your bogey. So the strategic issues or opportunities to trim strokes. And it could be go out and the four hours you're spending a good portion of that work on lag putting. So when you are on the green from 30 or 40 feet, you're not three putting 50% of the time. You're three putting 25% of the time. So efficiency in practice in the time allocation is another important one. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That. Getting the most out of it, definitely. So obviously as coaches then, Cam, concepts, well, for players, concepts is, is huge. What are, the, what are the biggest concepts or the misconceptions that they're coming in with to you that you see as students are coming in with that are having a negative effect on their performance? I think the biggest misconception that comes off the top of the dome is that they uh, need to hit it further to play better. Uh, largely, if a person's not hitting it far enough, they need to move up a set of tees uh, because for most recreational players to hit it further outside of really good club fitting, which is certainly some low-hanging fruit. Really good club fitting is, club fitting is low-hanging fruit to enhance distance. Um, a lot of the time for a recreational player understanding how the wrists affect face motions that then would turn a wicked crop dusting slice into a manageable fade or a wicked crop dusting slice into a draw to enhance uh, ball speed is also some low-hanging fruit for increased distance. Um, and also centerness of contact. Centerness of contact, contact is low-hanging fruit some for increased distance. But at the same time, being responsible and playing from a set of tees that allows you, just like the players you see on TV, uh, approach greens with some reasonable length clubs rather than playing par fours and having to pull out a head cover every time you're on a par four, hitting three wood, five wood, long hybrids in. I mean, that's just... Uh, it's swimming so far upstream against a, just a massive current. So that's one that I think that is a misconception that needs to be broken. Uh, you want to shoot lower scores, play from forward tees. Also, you're giving us, yourself a chance to uh, experience the potential for lower scoring. Mm. And most often, the psychological bounds that we have to break when we're having a career best round are ill-prepared for because it happens so infrequently. But if you're playing from shorter tees, you're giving yourself shorter clubs into greens and you're putting yourself in much more offensive situations and you build this culture of uh of offense adam scott said it on a recent earn your edge podcast that we had released actually just last week he said winning never gets old and you can't win enough learning to win is absolutely essential and when he when he says learning to win uh he thinks of probably winning tournaments but as it's kind of like related back to recreational players i think of um personal bests winning over a previous personal best or having some success that you had previously hadn't had. And so you need to set up an environment there that um, stacks the deck in favor of that happening. And playing from 7,000 yards when your driver distance is only 220 off the tee, uh, whether that's meters or yards, really doesn't matter. 
uh, is friendly stacking the deck in favor of the house, not you. Uh, so giving yourself a chance to succeed is another misconception that needs to be broken. Most people don't even think of it. They don't even think of going to the golf course or going to practice and saying, am I giving myself the best chance of, to realistically su succeed here? And there are an array of um, misconceptions. Uh, one that really uh, rubs me the wrong way is when recreational players and coaches, quite frankly, talk about using the bounce. Um, and this goes all the way to manufacturers as well who are a report or a market that their clubs are superior because of the bounce angles. And quite frankly, every shot that's struck off the ground is bounce interacting with uh, the, the contact, that impact interval that I previously described. And when I'm asked to solve short game problems for players that have this misconception of using the bounce, typically it's because they're trying to use the bounce and they're trying to affect uh, an impact to the ground rather than letting that impact to the ground be a result of um, trying to make the proper impact to the ball for a given trajectory. And so there are some shots where it's advantageous to actively try and move the club against the ground in a way that might qualify as using the bounce. And then there's some short game shots where absolutely you're not thinking about using the bounce. You're just thinking about making an impact uh, to a golf ball where bounce is just a natural conclusion of awesome. um, impact to the ground and the golf ball almost at the same time. So and that's another one that comes straight off the dome. But the first two are probably most least talked about least yeah. thought about and therefore most forgotten by recreational players i think it's a good point i think the last thing i would want to do is go and play and be pulling out head covers for the second shot and hitting four irons into greens it wouldn't be much fun either would it <laughs> let alone, let alone no. score wise and, and and believe it when when the best players in the world play on golf courses that challenge them to pull out hybrids long irons and fairway woods they are just as miserable as recreational <laughs> players and that, they would they would be the first to choose not <laughs> oh yeah par threes at 230 they're not enjoying those are they yeah, like US Open 275. Oh, great. I could have a three wood into a par three. Beautiful. <laughs> what would you say is overrated in golf and what is underrated in terms of what golfers are, are, are practicing and working on? Yeah, I'd go back to, for recreational players, the low-hanging fruit that I just previously described, particularly yeah. the quality of club fitting that exists. Uh, the knowledge that uh, coaches can learn as well. What's underrated is uh, using technology to advantage. I think in the coaching world, technology just gets uh, bastardized and gets just a bad name, particularly those that are far more senior coaches. Uh, the modern shift to using technology to aid and abet um, in golfer improvement uh, gets accused of being a at fault and part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And quite frankly, it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, I'd be the first one uh, advocating that any rookie coach or any developing coach needs to expose themselves to all of the tools and all the technology to enhance their own ability to see and therefore ability to know what are those high mileage interventions. If I try and ask a player to do X, then how quickly will they get the outcome they're looking for? Um, so Sam Putlab, Gears, uh, all the all the launch monitors to be fluent in all the technology is really really important for coaches. Um, that's underrated. Uh, what's overrated is time. What's dramatically overrated for both PGA Tour, a European Tour, and LPGA Tour professionals is thinking that you've done a good day's work when you've spent eight to ten hours at the golf course. That's yeah. what's overrated. Yeah. Uh, Xander, Xander Shoffley back in January, Patrick Cantlay. Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, 
Uh, then the list goes on. The guys that we've interviewed most recently on the podcast have all talked about uh, given a seven day project of playing your best golf, how do you get that job done? And, and the essence of that, of the answer to that question is I do just enough monitoring and maintenance work on my form to know that the outcomes that I'm going to get fit my eye and fit my feel. And then I go play. And playing is how players get better if they have a seven day project to play their best golf. Um, and that applies for recreational players as well. You've got to know what things are going to achieve your best results. And <clears throat> what's also underrated, and I'll kind of close this and I'll put a bow in it, is documenting your journey of success. The best players in the world also, whether it's digitally on an iPhone note document or with a written journal, they all have a means to go back a month or two months or six months and reflect on what were the pieces that were in place when I was achieving the results that I'm looking for. Recreational golfers just don't apply time to doing that, do they? Yeah. So documenting your pathway to success is documenting your pathway out of results that you're not um, not enjoying. Yeah, I think that's huge. I mean, you know, Mr. Hogan so sort of said that a long time ago, didn't he? You know, he'd always yeah. have his book with him on the practice area. And I think it's it's too easy to ignore that. All, a lot of it always circles back to I've got to change my golf swing, got to change my golf swing. Whereas mm -hmm. actually, you know, just 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 note down what works for you, and if you and yeah. even just think of the confidence that sort of gives you over a year in looking back at that book and going, I'm actually pretty good. You know, there's, yeah. some, there's some tremendous value in that for sure. Or in the, on the coaching front, we talk about Harvey Penning, the legend here in Texas, who carried around his little red book. Absolutely. Right? Then they became his, um, uh, yeah, his journal of I'm going to give this to the golf world now. These are my yeah. nuggets that I learned from my. Uh, days on the lesson tee in the Austin Heat. Absolutely, massively powerful. So obviously, look, we know that obviously you work with a lot of great players. You spend time on tour. From amateurs looking at this, now I suppose one part of my question was going to be what should amateurs not learn from tour pros? And I suppose that's just the imitation of their golf swing, I suppose is the one thing. But yeah, what, what kind sure. of things What kind of things would they, when they're watching a tournament, should they be looking out for that they could, they could almost apply to themselves? Yeah, uh, that's a hard one because the clarity that you can pick up merely by watching golf on TV. Let's just say golf on TV with a sound off. What can you pick up on? There's not much. You can pick up on rhythm. Uh, you can pick up on uh, the in-between stuff, assuming that you're watching the leader groups, which oftentimes the what's broadcast, uh, the cadence of walk. Now, what can you pick up on when you're, you've got the volume on? Oftentimes, you're picking up on just the general commentary, which is, uh, in many cases, dribble. In many cases, the talking heads that are only either talking to their own experience, a.k.a. Uh, Johnny Miller back in the day when he was broadcasting, or Nick Faldo in these days, uh, talking about themselves, and this is what I would have done, or this is what I did. Uh, but there is a nuance in the commentary, which is, the nuance of what a player is dealing with from the on-course guys. The on-course guys have the ability to color commentate on how a player responds to how the golf ball is sitting in the grass, whether that's in the fairway or the rough or greenside shots. And that's where they can pick up some knowledge nuggets that then can be applied uh, to their own golf experience. What also you pick up on is when those boom mics capture conversation between player and caddy or maybe it's just conversation player to him or herself. The self-talk, the dialogue that goes on outside that you know 
is mirrored and maybe even expanded on inside that is in some ways um, the player inspiring themselves, the player berating themselves, um, all in order to find their best performing self. Um, so tactical, um, the psychology of performing at a high level are things you can pick up on with uh, access to like the audio from boom mics. Uh, listen to the color commentary from the commentators that are on the golf course because they'll give you um, the refined detail of how the golf ball is going to inform what a player can or can't do. And that's a big consideration. I players that I, I deal with all the time say, Cam, I was so proud of this shot. And, and they'll make comment that no one, even the crowd that was four feet away from me, like outside the ropes, was crowding around this green side shot, could even fathom how difficult this wet into the green Bermuda grass lie was that I had to hit a flop shot off, flop shot off from the right side, short side of number two at um, yeah, TPC Sawgrass. I remember Jordan coming back two or three years ago from TBC Sawgrass and he played with Phil Mickelson and they both missed it. And the one that came to mind, which is why I mentioned short right on number two at TBC Sawgrass, par five. And it's a right flag. They've maybe got six feet of green to work with before um, uh, the pin location. And Phil's going first. Their balls are basically in the exact location and it is wet. It is grainy. It is Bermuda. And Phil, 64-degree wedge, hits his classic flop shot that takes one hop and just rips to a stop right by the flag. And Jordan comes back from that event, and he said, Phil looked up at me, and Jordan just shook his head like this. <laughs> and when you have one of the best players in the world shaking their head at another best player in the world, that puts into context the respect, game-recognizing game that commentators on course probably couldn't have picked that up, or maybe they did but certainly a recreational player that's watching from the comfort of their home or Nick Faldo from the booth, they have no idea. And then Jordan <laughs> said, I had to do the same after that. <laughs> <laughs> Did he? He said he, he said he took a different approach and hit it a little bit further past the pin, but they ended up with the same score in the hole, which was four. So uh, he certainly wasn't as bold as Phil Mickelson and didn't feel like he needed to be as bold to get the same outcome. But yeah, that, it, just, it just serves as example is, is all it is. Absolutely. Brilliant. And I'm just... Actually, going to Jordan, actually, then, uh, Cam, what are the traits that, that makes Jordan great? And, and what, are the thing, what are the traits that I suppose he shares with a lot of the elite players that you notice? Yeah, the commonalities. Uh, Gio Valiente, a friend of mine, sports psychologist in the golf world, um, talks about, uh, and I'm not too sure how he eloquently phrased it on a podcast maybe a year and a half ago now, um, but he talks about exceptionalities that none of these elite players um, share very much in common. They are the tail end of the distri distribution. Um, I'm not so sure that I agree with that, though, because there are uh, character traits, um, separating skills for sure that are earned through sweat equity, sweat equity time uh, in practice, and um, uh, I guess edge earning actions. And those character traits, I would... Uh, define as a willingness to work hard, a willingness to do the work in absence of immediate results. Going back to the very first comment that I made about recreational golf, it's being patient, but at the same time impatient. And ever since age 12, when I met Jordan for the first time, and also any other high-performance player that I've been around, there's that level of impatience of the need to satisfy themselves, that they can cause a ball to behave that they can feel like they've got the ball on a string, like they're just playing with their um, uh, their senses, their feels. 
and they can move it five feet additionally or move it five feet less in the air or they can cause it to spin with 700 or 1,000 RPM more. It's that nuanced a level of expectation that these world-class players have. But at the same time, the patience that says, if I don't have that, I don't care if it takes me four hours in the Texas heat and 100 degrees. I'm going to work at it and I'm going to master this. So there's an impatience, but a tolerance at the same time that the small differences that separate world-class skill, they're so small that it might take me four hours, but I'm going to get it. Yeah. And I'm damn sure going to work at it. Uh, so there's that. There's also the mindset of competing, the mindset of success in the golf course. And Xander Shoffley and Patrick Cantlay talked about it back in, um, in, in January when we had them on. Uh, most recently, Adam Scott, Jimmy Walker, and, um, and Ricky Fowler said something very similar, which is, you know, I see competition as a natural extension of practice. And when I face pressure pack situations, what helps me is the mindset of minimizing, the mindset of, you know, I've done this in practice, and there's no reason why I should let the magnitude of the situation, the thousands of people that are watching me in person, the tens of thousands that might be watching me online, and the consequences of mis-executing, which might be $200,000 less or sometimes even more than that in the paycheck, influence my execution right now. And in addition to that, Another high-performance characteristic that they lean on is challenge. They talk to themselves inside and they summon, in many cases, anger and aggression towards an attitude of less than, an attitude of, like, uh, a sports psychologist that I love reading and, and listening to is Michael Gervais, and he said, in the face of stress, in the face of anxiety, most people think of this fight or flight, right? I can either fight it or I can, I can, I can flee from it. And he said there's a couple of other options. And he says one that's not commonly talked about is freezing, right? I just crap my pants <laughs> and don't know what to do. And we've seen that on the world stage. And then there's the submission, like the giving into the possibility the outcome might be bad. But at the same time, what's the antidote or what's the, yeah, the antidote is probably a good word to any of this. And the best players in the world use anger and use self-talk to challenge themselves to be better, essentially summoning up an identity that, um, that is different than where their brain wants to send them. Yeah. Uh, and that's a high-performance characteristic, a high-performance trait that's littered through these conversations that we've had. I, I could probably go on just yeah. kind of continuing that, that, um, uh, that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned that about obviously them making things up in their mind. You th obviously, I think the buzz thing that people have been watching is The Last Dance on Netflix, obviously, Michael Jordan and some of the things that he used to do to himself. Mm. You know, I, I always remember, was it was it, was it the one player he made up the story about him sort of um, saying to him, oh, great game, Michael, you know, as he walks off the court having just beat him and he's like interviewed a year later. No, I made that up. <laughs> just, exactly. he, he, making right. things up to make himself angry almost. Crazy. Yeah. Introducing or inventing challenge frame to uh, inspire better, inspire yeah. greatness out of you. And uh, like in recreational golfers listening to this and junior golfers listening to this might feel like this is difficult, but they already do it. Mm. Particularly junior golfers, they already role play. How many junior golfers do you guys know that local club go out there and pretend they're Rory McIlroy, pretend they're insert name yeah. of big time player on big time stage, Rory McIlroy with a final putt to win the Open Championship, yeah. or Rory McIlroy winning the career Grand Slam by closing out of the Guster in 
this year or next year or whenever uh, it ultimately will happen. And junior golfers all over the world are role playing that. So they already have this uh, spirit of imagination and spirit of summoning something from themselves, even if it's um, in many ways inventive at first. All you need is success, and it doesn't matter how you get it. Borrowing someone else's identity is a valid means to do it. Todd Herman, an author that we interviewed many months back, he wrote a book called The Alter Ego Effect, where you've got Bo Jackson in football, you've got Kobe Bryant, who was the Black Mamba, and you've got Beyonce, and the list goes on. Um, Beyonce, who has invented an identity, Sasha Fierce. And they use these identities to become someone different. Bo Jackson was Jason from Friday the 13th. They use these identities to summon a set of characteristics in a given field of play, the field that they're trying to perform at their best, where ordinarily maybe the, the, the person that's cooking dinner at home or the person that's um, typing on their computer in the office, they don't need that type of spirit, that type of character trait, that killer instinct that Michael Jordan demonstrated or Kobe Bryant demonstrated on the court. But it might benefit you on the golf course next time you go out. Absolutely. So, why not put on your superpower suit and give it a try? <laughs> Brilliant. Now, you've been, you've been great with your time. Thank you so much. I know you've got some coaching to do in a moment, but we do do a quick fire round. I'm going to go through these, Andy. I'm just going to pick out probably three of these. I want to be very respectful in how I ask this question. You're on the driving I range. Fish, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's an American expression range. of no answer. Yeah, yeah, there we go. You're on the driving range at Augusta on a Saturday night, and there's two golfers on the range, Tiger on the left, Rory on the right, both help, both shouting out for help. You can only help one of them. Which one would you go to, Tiger or Rory? I, I don't I don't help either of them. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's, there's a good chance what they need, they already have. They just need to be reminded of that. Um, in an addition, I'm not on their teams, so I wouldn't. Uh, you don't remind any of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I wouldn't want to help them because there's a good chance there's a player that I have that's pretty close to the lead, and uh, yeah, I'm going to aid and abet the person who um, I'm riding shotgun with. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That's actually probably the best answer you could have done. <laughs> What's the best thing about being a coach? Uh, when you help someone achieve a standard a performance, whether it's one shot, whether it's an 18 hole round or whether it's a triumph in a club championship or all the way up to a professional victory, achieve something they uh, couldn't otherwise achieve, or it might've taken them longer to achieve themselves. When you're a facilitator, when you're an um, accelerant to performance. Love it. If you had the power, mm-hmm. a superpower to give the, to give any golfer the one thing, what would that one thing be? Oh, that's a really good one because I want to go in many directions. <laughs> if, if, if I had the power to give any golfer a superpower, what would it be? I can go back and give Lee Westwood the ability to short game it like Seve Ballesteros because <laughs> I was a massive Lee Westwood fan growing up. I uh, thought of him because he walked like he had superpowers. Yeah. He still does to this day. Yeah, he, yeah, he does. Built like a like a brick, you know what? Yeah. Um, and I, I loved watching him play. I loved watching him stripe it. Um, yeah, I, I'd go to that. And I don't know why I went to Lee Westwood because I, I'd go back and probably give Tiger Woods the discipline to make choices as if his father was around possibly. Yeah, um, yeah. And that might come with some political consequence if Tiger happens to catch wind of this. But maybe Tiger <laughs> would agree with that. Because um, to, have, to have a role model that's so foundational in – your upbringing and development and your career 
and to lose that role model, to lose that influence um, is almost like losing a superpower, right? Yeah, um, I think so. So I'm sure that if the choice was made and you can go back and you could um, change events that happened, uh, that having Tiger's dad around would have uh, prevented maybe a period of time that Tiger would uh, want to live differently. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Okay, last question. Building yeah. the perfect golfer, driver, irons, short game, and putting, who are your four? Hmm. Based on either people you've worked with or seen, bearing in mind you've seen them all, but uh, yeah. 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 Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so the the avatar that I would build would be Fred Funk's accuracy with Dustin Johnson's power with uh, Tiger Woods putting prowess in his heyday and Sevi Ballesteros' short game skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could create a different avatar made up of far more modern players. Uh, but then that's suggesting that I have great envy for those out there and I don't want to give them uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to give them that <laughs> I like it I love it I love it and, and that's and that's uh, well, hold on that's not even fair um, let me let me go the female direction because I spend so many time around the LPGA yeah. players I need to give them the respect that's due uh, yeah. the avatar from a female player not that I ever saw her play um, Babe Zaharias or Mickey Wright just to combine those two and you've got the uh, best performance and winningest record of anyone that ever lived, right? So it might be those two, or it would certainly uh, be some proxy or combination of um, Anne Van Dam's distance or length with uh, NB Park's tempo and, and, and accuracy, and, and so on you, one of my clients, uh, with her uh, precision. And then, uh, yeah, NB Park putting. I mean, gosh, I, I don't yeah. know that I've ever seen a, a, a better putter, at least in her heyday. So there's props to the girls as well. Awesome stuff. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Cam, for your time. I know you've got to get off back coaching now. But for the listeners to this, where can, it's been great. where can they um, connect with you? Where's the best place for them to, to to sort of get in contact with you or listen to the podcast, for instance? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the first place to get in contact would be any of the socials, Alters Performance, or the website, altersperformance.com. That's A-L-T-U-S, performance spelled as it sounds. And then the podcast on any of the podcast mediums, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, um, Spotify, it's Earn Your Edge, E-A-R-N-Y-O-U-R-E-D-G-E. Earn Your Edge is the podcast. Thanks, guys. Make sure you listen to it, guys. There's some great stuff on there. Thanks, Cam. Have a great day. Cheers, guys. And we'll speak to you soon. Look forward to seeing you soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you found some great value in it. And if you did, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Also, let us know your feedback by leaving us a rating or review over on iTunes. And remember, if you want to go deeper and really improve your game, head over to meandmygolf.com and start your free trial and check out one of the many plans that are seeing incredible results. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you next week.